Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today's guests are Scott and Jennifer Dawson. They run Ground Zero Archery, which started in Niles, Michigan. They now have another shop in St. Joe, Michigan. Uh, We talked all about that, shooting off a horseback, bow fishing for stingrays, just archery in general. They are fanatics and they are very, very knowledgeable. Without further ado, please give it up for our friends Scott and Jennifer Dawson from Ground Zero Archery. Before we, until we get our new studio, Tyke gets cut out of the audio or the video for uh, for four people. Yeah, they get to watch the back corner of my head. <laughs> awesome. So I was on Facebook yesterday, and I happened to notice that uh, apparently I was already a member, but there is a archery on horseback Facebook group. You guys are like the admins of that thing. I didn't realize that till yesterday, just randomly. That would have been the Great Lakes Mounted Archery. I created that. Yes, I am admin for um, Horseback Archery of Michigan. I'm okay. One of them, yes. Okay. Yeah, so that seems a little difficult, huh? Do you guys do lessons for that, or you guys just so run the page? No, um, I both my daughter and I um, compete nationally. Um, Scott has also competed down in Texas um, and did very well. Uh, what I I do offer clinics. I offer weekly lessons. I go and help other clubs manage their competitions. Like last year, I was in Virginia Beach. Mm-hmm. So Did something you- that I really enjoy. And uh, am passionate about and currently ranked 11th in the nation. Really? Wow. And we're holding a National Mounted Archery Competition um, this Memorial Day in Edwardsburg. In fact, I spent all day getting set up for that today. So how does that work? So you just run a couple different courses? Yeah, so what is going to be Friday is practice day for our competitors. Right now, we have 15-plus competitors. Uh, There's the canter division. Then there's also walk trot. So if you're not ready to be at a full run and uh, be shooting a bow, then you can start out with a walk. And maybe it's not even you. Maybe it's your horse that needs to get ready uh, so that way you can just get them along and come together on the journey. Nice. Yep. So Friday is practice. And then Saturday we run what is called the tower track. There is a tall tower in the center of a 90-meter track, and it has three sides. Um, basically, one is forward-facing, one is side track, and then you have a back shot. Front shot, side shot, back shot. And you try to release as many arrows as you can. And then it's all traditional, no compounds, right? Correct. It is all traditionals. In fact, uh, one of the rules for mounted archery is that the um, bow cannot have a shelf. Uh, Most of us are actually drawing the bow using our thumb. So that way, um, it's the arrow is on the opposite side of the bow normally than I would shoot right hand. I am a right hand archer, so normally the arrow is on the left side of the bow. For mounted archery, I actually have the arrow on the right side so that I can go ahead and pinch, pull the string with my thumb and then use my pointer finger to pinch the arrow and push that arrow against the riser so it does not move up and down as my horse moves up and down. Is that a common thing for like like bow fishing and stuff too, people that shoot? I mean, it's kind of a European, Asiatic thing, but thumb draw just allows you to keep pressure the arrow pressure against the side of the bow so it doesn't come off the side of the bow there's something holding it something there's pressure to hold the arrow against the bow because otherwise 
if you have just an arrow laying on the shelf like you have on a normal recurve or longbow and nothing holding it, it'll just flop off the bow. Right. You know, because you're on a running horse and you're shooting at all different angles behind you and some some of the courses are overhead. You have symbols on 20-foot poles. It's called the kabak. So you ride past those and you're actually shooting symbols in the air. With um, blunt tips. Yeah. Gotcha. So there's... Um, it's just a different form of shooting as well. Now, there are some top-ranked archers that do um, pull the string, draw the string. It's called Mediterranean. It, for us traditional archers, we would know it as one above, two under, or split finger. Okay. So there is that option if you're more comfortable with that. Um, many people find that the thumb or Persian Slavic draw is more beneficial and easier for them. So what? Uh, what's the Apache draw? Are you familiar? I heard that the other day, and I couldn't. It's either two fingers, like one one above, or or two below and one above, or that would be split finger. I'm not familiar with that term. No, because a lot of people there's they, everybody calls them different. There's pinch. There's all kinds, and a lot of um, when somebody says Apache, or a lot of that is like drawing to the eye. Okay, kind of like sighting down the arrow. So I think everybody has different terms for a lot of the same different styles of shooting. They just call them different things. Okay. And you guys just opened a new shop up here in uh, St. Joe. Just oh. a little over a year ago, yeah. Right. It was shortly after I moved up here, I remember, which is convenient because I didn't know any good bow shops up here. So. <laughs> <laughs> good. And one of the first things I noticed about you guys, you guys are very meticulous about your work. A lot more than a lot of other bow shops. I remember I, I took a peep site to you and had, had you mess with it. And you were on that thing for like an hour, and uh, I never had a problem with it since, you know. And that that really impressed me. Um, yeah. Well, we're passionate about what we do, um, and I honestly believe that we're there to help people. Okay, I have a prof, uh, I have a people over profit business philosophy. So, what we're there for is ultimately to help you just enjoy archery. To help you be successful in archery, regardless of what, I don't know, discipline you exercise or what you're looking to do, whether it's target or hunting or mounted archery or bow fishing or traditional archery, Olympic recurve, whatever it is. You know, we we practice all disciplines. We either compete or teach all disciplines. Um, so, you know, we just go out of our way to make sure that people are taken care of and satisfied. Because that's ultimately what's important to us. We kind of want it. We treat people the way we would want to be treated. Yeah, I don't like, I mean, even, you know, bow sales and things like that. Um, you can come in with a 20-year-old bow and say, can you just do a safety check over or I'd like a tune or whatever. I don't want that bow going out the door if I wouldn't get in a tree or a blind with it myself, period. That's just the way I look at it. Everything that we... Uh, sell anything that goes out the door goes out the door in the condition that that um, ultimately I would use it myself. Giving traditional lessons is is it a lot of people getting into archery for the first time, or is it a lot of like compound shooters trying to make the switch? Like, what would you say would be more of the people you deal with for traditional? Yeah, I would say for traditional, it's more new people than it is probably easier to teach than people converting yeah yeah so a traditional archer going into compound shooting is 
it's it's very easy. But for a compound shooter, somebody that's relied on you know specific um, you know draw length stops and a rear aperture and a front sight, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, picking up a traditional bow generally and trying to shoot instinctively is is you know is a much harder transition. But for the most part, traditional archery, all the people we see coming in and wanting to get into traditional archery are, are generally people that are just getting into archery. Maybe had shot a compound before years ago, um, and then coming back. Uh, and not going right back to compound, they want to try traditional. So I think the traditional discipline is really growing. Actually, it has been for several years. It's been exploding, and I think it's it's picking up even more. I think people are looking for more of a challenge and something that's more satisfying. And, you know, with a traditional bow in your hand, you have to be more of a hunter. Right. You have to be more of a hunter. It's it's you don't have a site to depend on. You don't have all your gadgets and gizmos. You don't have, you know, approaching 300, 300 plus feet per second. You don't have wide mechanicals <laughs> to rely on those kind of things. Right. And it's going to take more discipline on time because with a compound um, and those aiming aids and things, you can. The learning curve is yeah, a lot steeper. So you got compound be. archery because you have release aids, you have you know all this stuff, and so yeah, I mean it takes a lot longer to become proficient and uh, comfortable and confident enough to get in a tree or a blind, you know, and take a shot on a live animal. There's a there's a huge range difference with that too. I've seen a lot of deer walk by at 25 <laughs> yards because I won't take a shot <laughs> yeah, at. I, I mean, you take a compound, and I I see guys take 60 yard shots on elk all the time. Yeah. Even guys up here, some of them take that shot on a whitetail, but yeah. you go out there with traditional longbow or recurve, mm-hmm. man, I can't hit the broadside of a barn at 30. Yeah. Yeah. I'm comfortable on an elk size game at 30 yards, but as far as deer, um, I consider elk pretty slow and lumbering, and they seem to generally be pretty comfortable in their environment. Deer are generally you know, hypersensitive and they're just fast. Right. Um, typically on my traditional builds, I'm running 47 pounds at 28 inch draw. For me, it ends up being, you know, 50, 51 pounds. Um, my arrow setups are anywhere from six to 700 grains total weight. So, uh, my arrow speed is anywhere from 165 to 175 feet per second. A lot slower than I can. Much slower. (laughs) So I'm taking 12 and 15 yard shots comfortably. And like I said, you have to be more of a hunter. You have to take the animal's attitude and their mood into account before you take that shot. Um, because a deer will compress and turn to jump before that arrow gets there. Even you know, recurves are, for the most part, silent. You, right. can, you can make them very, very quiet, much quieter than a compound and certainly way far quieter than a crossbow. But the deer still hears it. Right. And it reacts to it. Um, so if the deer is engrossed in another animal or feeding or browsing and they're really, really comfortable, you could take a little farther shot. But if they're hypersensitive at all or they have an idea that something just isn't right, um, you know, more than likely they're going to they're gonna have a chance to duck that arrow or move and you're going to make a bad shot if they're farther out. 
I feel like a lot of us have learned that lesson as uh, young hunters. I know I have. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I learned yeah. very early on that a deer's first movement is down. Yeah, <laughs> down. They they compress to jump. Everybody says they duck there. Well, it actually is ducking, I guess, per se, but they generally are compressing to turn and jump, and, and they think, you know, it, it's ducking. Right. So, um, but yeah, try as it, when you first get into kind of the hunting game and you're out there and you really want to make something happen and you kind of push for it and... Yeah, that's when you can make a bad shot and then sleepless nights and all that, yeah. I'm assuming you only deer hunt with traditional? 90% of the time. Okay. So what, do you, if you were, is there a different broadhead you would use for a traditional bow compared to a compound bow? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so no mechanicals. Uh, a recurve just doesn't generate enough speed and energy mm -hmm. to um, to open up a mechanical. Uh, and get good penetration. Um, typically, a lot of some of the most popular broadheads are, um, say, you know, 175, 200, 250, 300 grain uh, two blade single bevel broadheads. Let's talk about that bevel for a minute because that's pretty important, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. I'm, you're the expert, not me, but I, I keep I keep hearing people talk to me about bevels when you're looking at broadheads. So, so what's the difference between a double bevel and a, and a single bevel? Well, a double bevel is like a knife edge. Okay. So if you looked at the very center of the tank, the blade, it tapers on both the left and the right side. A single bevel only has a taper on one side. One, one side is ground and the other is flat. So you either have a left bevel or a right bevel. So what would be the, what would be so advantageous about having a single bevel compared to a double bevel? I almost don't think there is a whole lot of difference. For me, the honest truth is I can't, I can't sharpen a double bevel to save my life. <laughs> <laughs> that is the honest truth. And so a single bevel, um, a couple of swipes with a file, and then once on the back, on the flat side, to knock the burr off, and you could shave anything. Okay. Very, very, very simple to maintain. Um, typically, people, um, you have left wing, right wing feathers uh, in traditional archery, just like, you know, you could fletch left or right wing if you put a helical on veins on a compound arrow. Um, and so somebody with a left... Uh, helical feather on their arrows would typically want to run left bevel. Um, a helical is so like if you look down the barrel of a rifled gun, you'll see the twist mm -hmm. inside the barrel. A helical on feathers or veins is the same thing. The feather will right. actually twist on the shaft or helical down the shaft. So um, like factory fletched arrows in boxes from manufacturers for compound bows generally have like a one degree offset or one degree helical. Just to get a spin? Yes. Yeah. To just stabilize the arrow in flight. Now, if it wasn't spinning, it wouldn't fly right to that. No, it will. You can yeah. totally do uh, straight fletch. And some shafts you can shoot bare shaft and they'll have a natural they'll have a natural rotation left or right. And, I mean, that's kind of a part of bear shaft tuning as well, which is a very complicated thing that we could get into, but I don't think we have enough time for that. <laughs> um, a lot of traditional archers prefer a left-wing um, fletching style. Okay. Uh, Right-hand shooters anyway, and, and uh, some people don't care. I'm in the don't care camp. 
I don't care if my arrows are fletched left wing or right wing. Most uh, every everything I've always done is right wing uh, fletching. Yeah, um, do, do you think there's a reason why most right-handed shooters like? Well, it's the way the arrow comes off the shelf or off the bow itself. If you're shooting offhand, um, the left wing feathers kind of help clear clear the riser, pulling the arrow to the left. Okay. Um, for me. If the arrow is spined right and everything's matched well, it it doesn't matter if it's left or right wing. And as a matter of fact, we've spent we've spent time with quite a few very accomplished shooters. You know, we've had opportunities to spend time and learn from some of the the very well known individuals. And um, one, in fact, is Byron Ferguson, who is a very well known traditional archer. Um, he's a a world-renowned trick shooter, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked him specifically about that, and he said it makes absolutely no difference whatsoever if you fletch left or right wing and you're left or right-handed. But he said if you want to start a good fight, just mention it in a group and walk away. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, I'll take his advice. Now, if you were shooting a compound bow, what broadhead would you run? I actually – okay, so – in the very beginning, what was it, the 03s, 02, somewhere back then when this whole mechanical thing took off and there was a really popular brand, um, I tried them and had my very first one fail. Are you talking I don't know what it is. Um, so I, got, I recovered the animal only because I backed out and six hours later right. I got him, right? Suffocated on its own blood. And oh. it was a pencil hole in and out. Oh, oh. Oh, center punched him. Yeah. So I recovered oh. the animal, but the broadhead did not open. So from there, it was, I don't know, 15 years of Thunderheads. Because yeah. oh, that's yes. what I always yeah. used before. You could get a five pack for thir- whatever it was at Walmart mm-hmm. or wherever, right? Cheapies. Yeah. Yeah. So 100 grain uh, Thunderheads was my go-to and I never... Never had a problem with them. Always got wrinkled blades on muzzies every time I tried. Really? Yeah, if I hit a rib or something, there was a, a wrinkle. But them them thunderheads were just indestructible. So um, when we when we decided to uh, start the shops, you know, I was putting bows together, and uh, I decided once again to try a mechanical, and I actually tried a uh, Schwacker hybrid. Okay. Absolutely devastating. Shrek trackers are the big spread, right? Got nothing. Well, these are inch and three quarter, but they do have two little fixed blades on them as well. So it's a hybrid. And um, I run, you know, my arrows are only 480 grains. I run a a, a reduced diameter. So it's four millimeter uh, deep impact. So total arrow weight with 100 grade broadheads, like 480. And uh, most of the bows I've used in the past three years have been obsessions. Typically 65 to 70 pounds, my arrows are running right at around the 300 at 29 inch draw, 300, 314 feet mm-hmm. per second. So I found that the the deep impact uh, reduced diameter, you know, that four millimeter and that uh, Schwacker hybrid were just absolutely devastating. The thickness of the shaft is pretty important, right? Well, I just found that out last year from you guys, actually. Yeah, I've... I've move to the the reduced diameter because obviously there's less surface tension right on a pass through 
I mean, you just can't get away from that. Less crosswind interference because you have less surface area. That's not really such a big deal for us here in Michigan because most of us don't take 60-yard shots on deer and, you know. As you shouldn't in Michigan. Well, and um, the other thing is the when you reduce your outer diameter to maintain spine, you have to increase the wall thickness. So just inherently, you're building a more durable shaft. Right. Period. So... You know, and you can see that if you grab like 23s or 25s or 27s, you know, any of those uh, target shafts, you can squeeze them and feel them flex because yeah. because to maintain that spine with the larger outer diameter, you have a much thinner wall thickness. Well, as you go down in, in outer diameter, you're increasing wall thickness and you're just making a more durable shaft. She's saying everything's so loud. Um, so, so the... The average hunter here in Michigan shooting a compound bow, what should they be shooting? As, like with a 70-pound draw weight. That's, I, think, I feel like it's about 60, 70 pounds. So you mean as far as um, just the, the overall arrow build? or Just just the, the diameter of the actual mm-hmm. arrow because that, that's something I never paid attention to before. Yeah. You know? Well, so... <sighs> You could shoot anything. I mean, you shoot five sixteenths, five millimeter, which is your axis rampage, et cetera, et cetera. You could shoot your four millimeter, which is, um, you know, uh, deep impact, the new long range stuff from Easton. So they have four millimeter FMJ, four millimeter axis. I mean, you you could shoot anything, and some people prefer you know one over the other. Um, you you're gonna pay a little more for the reduced diameter. <laughs> Give me a second. I gotta let him out. Yeah, keep going. You're good. Hank, come here, buddy. Every time we try this, buddy, come here. Hank. Well, Hank Slip. likes our guests. That's yeah. Well, yeah. now he's laying down. Now he's. Oh yeah, he's he's. he's like, he knew exactly what you were gonna do, <sighs> yeah. so he came right in between us. <laughs> he's locked in now. Okay, sorry. Yeah, it, it that was just a question they they threw at me when I was looking for arrows last year. Uh, I was actually trying to get my fiance Allie set up. It was her first year, you know. And they were like, "Well, what diameter arrow do you want?" I'm like, "I." Yeah. Some I people know. have a preference, and some people just want guidance. Um, I don't think I've ever watched a podcast before, or listened to one. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. there's tons of people coming in the past couple of years watching. This podcast or that podcast, right? Or whatever. And they're Mm -hmm. like, they told me I got to do this or I got to shoot a thousand grain total weight arrow now out of my 60 pound compound bow or et cetera, et cetera. And um, so some people just come in that got information that they gleaned off the internet or whatever. And they they thought it was really good or bought into it or whatever. Um, And then so we kind of just build something for them or recommend something that fits the requirements they come in with, right? Mm-hmm. The best thing, honestly, because kinetic energy is what it's all about. So, you know, you got FOC, you got kinetic energy, you got all this this stuff. Um, and there's a there's there's an area, there's like a sweet spot on everything, right? Right. So somewhere with your draw length, with your bow, I mean, the, the cams make a difference. Is it a single cam? Is it a dual cam? Is it an aggressive dual cam? Is it a fast bow? Is it, you know, not fast? So all these things kind of play into how you build your arrows. 
mm-hmm. and kinetic energy ultimately is like the end result of everything you do. It's your, you know, it's bow speed times bow speed times arrow weight divided by four hundred fifty thousand two hundred forty. That gives you foot pounds. <laughs> Not like you've ever done that before or anything. Well, because we figure it for everybody. I mean, we traditional archers. Right. Uh, somebody comes in and says, hey, I want to do this. I'm, I'm going to be hunting. My, You know, I got a 45-pound longbow. I got a 26-inch draw length, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, you're going to be a pretty hard push if you want to get to 40 foot pounds kinetic energy to go hunt to, uh, bear or elk. Right. Which I think we had the gentleman from uh, New York somehow was on his way up to a bear hunt. That was and Bustamante, yeah. Yeah, he just found our shop, and so, yeah, you tell the story. Well, he, w- he wasn't comfortable with his setup, and he knew that when he left New Jersey. New Jersey. <laughs> oh, okay. So he was on his way, like, all the- he was going to go up through Wisconsin or whatever. He had a bear hunt he was going to, and he he found us, and he stopped in and said, hey, you know, can you check my equipment out? I want to do this. I want to do that. I want so. You know, we checked everything out, put his uh, bow through the chronograph and gave him some numbers as far as his KE and and this and that to change some other stuff for him. And, yeah, he was thrilled to death. He went up, he got his bear, he sent us a picture. It was really cool. This has happened actually several times. We weren't open, um, wow, we were only open three months, two months, and we had a gentleman come in um, and... He saw that we had a lot of traditional gear, so uh, and he he had a longbow. Him and his his friend, they both had longbows, and so they were traditional shooters. And um, he had only been shooting, I guess, for a year or so not 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 that long. And um, so he he said, "Hey, uh, he goes, I hunted here, you know, for deer not too long ago." And he goes, "I made a perfect shot on an animal, just perfect." But I only got this much penetration, you know, and he's showing like three inches, if that. And he says, what do you think is wrong? And I said, your arrow's too light. You know, right off the bat, your arrow's too light. Um, If he made a good shot and he hit it where he needed to and he only got that much penetration, his arrow build was all wrong. So I said, "Let let me see your arrow. So he gives me the arrow. I don't even remember what brand the shaft was or, you know, what it had on it. It had just a hundred grain, whatever broadhead, like a muzzy or something like that. The arrow, the total arrow weight might have been 360, 370 grains. Way, way, way too light. So I said, let's go on the range. I'll be put this thing through the chronograph and let's see what you got. He had a 45-pound longbow, 27-inch draw length, and... Uh, Based on his arrow speed and weight, he was getting about 13 foot-pounds of kinetic energy, which is nothing. And so he was sufficient to kill a squirrel. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, he just, so he says, well, you know, I got this and that. I bought these arrows So at so-and-so. They told me this is exactly what I need to hunt with. And I said, that's exactly what you don't need. You need, you know, you're going to need something uh, built for you to get your, your KE up so you can ethically harvest an animal because it's not going to happen with what you have. So he said, would you, you know, figure out what I need? And I ran the numbers and I told him, I said, at your draw length and you're shooting a longbow, a longbow is not as efficient as a recurve, much slower, not as much energy. So I told him, I said, you need at your draw length and what you're doing. I said, you've got to, you got, you need a 50 pound bow. You need to go up and wait. 
And so he ordered uh, from his bowyer, you know, the guy, the bows he, he likes, he ordered a 50-pound bow. And I told him, I said, you need a 625-grain arrow, and that's going to get us around 39 to 41 foot-pounds kinetic energy with your draw length. And he said, build me the arrows. So I built the arrows for him. He got his bow. Um, and oddly enough, the whole thing was he was really kind of passionate about getting the right information and the right help and everything together because he had already booked a bear hunt in the spring that he was going to. And um, he wanted to do that with his longbow. And so... Uh, I built the arrows for him. He got his 50-pound bow in. He shot our trad league through the winter, you know, kept his skills sharp, you know, developed more, better, better. So he goes up to Canada to his bear hunt, and um, they're like, and this, what they do at this camp, I guess, is they take you to an island and just drop you off and give you a boat. And they give you a map and say, this is where the stands are and the bait, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah, yeah. They just put you on this in this cabin on this island or whatever, and say you go do your thing. And Sounds pretty awesome. You get a bear. There's a problem. You let us, you know, call us or whatever. Anyway, so they're like, "What are you going to shoot this bear with?" And he's like, "This longbow." And they're like, "No, you're not." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah. This is what I what I came for." And they're like, "Nobody's ever killed one of our bears with a traditional bow up here." And he's like, "Look, my buddy ran the numbers. We've got it all worked out. I've practiced all winter. I'm doing this." And they're like, "Dude, if if we have to go finish this thing off with a rifle, we're going to be rather upset." <laughs> and he's like, "No, it ain't going to happen." He's like, "I I can do this." And they're like, "All right." So it was like day two or something. Um, he center punched a huge black bear, double lunged it, nice, seventeen yards, just hammered it. Ended up having over twenty inch head. And the picture's actually in our shop there at Niles. Um, and so that was his first ever traditional kill. That is his first traditional trophy was this massive black bear. Really? So just, yeah. just to put it in perspective for everybody, what's an average black bear skull? I don't. Ish, I, ish. I'm like thinking somewhere in the low teens. All right. So black like, bears? Like, are, so 20s. Huge. They usually don't get all that big. Well, I mean, this, this might be, it's a Pope and Young black bear. Yeah, I guess 20 inches or over is Pope and Young. Um, and so, who knows? I mean, maybe at this place in Canada, that's an average bear. Right. You know what I mean? But True. for here in Michigan, they're about the size, a lot. some of them are just a little bigger than a good-sized German Shepherd. Right. Right. So, um, and, you know, oddly enough, I was in Colorado last year elk hunting, and uh, I was on Gunnison Mountain, and I didn't have a bear tag. And I was coming down like late afternoon. The wind had picked up and I thought I heard a bull raking up on a ridge. And I stalked this thing and I come up over the ridge and 12 yards away is a black bear <laughs> standing right there broadside. And uh, yeah, I got my recurve in my hand, my arrow knocked. I'm ready to center punch a bull. And uh, there's this stinking black bear stand there crushing logs and playing with wood getting bugs or something <laughs> at least it was a black bear i know no and, gr uh, no grizzlies in colorado thank goodness yeah well not down that far right um so let that be a lesson if you're gonna go to colorado elk hunting <laughs> spend the extra hundred dollars and get a black bear tag so do you do the colorado over-the-counter archery i imagine right that's yes. that's September full rut. Yeah. That sounds so much fun. Yeah. We, so last year was the first time I ever got to go. Um, 
and it was quite an experience. We were in the elk wilderness, elk mountain wilderness. Uh, so you can't take any wheels, nothing, no carts, no, you know, we, we rented two horses. Um, everything I needed, I packed in on my back. I had a 77 pound backpack and we went in three miles, How much? 77. <laughs> we went in three miles along Cole Creek and camped, um, for eight, nine days, something like that. That sounds so much fun. It was a, it was a great experience other than the fact that it was like 90 plus degrees every yeah. day. We went early um, so that one of the hunters could use a muzzleloader because he had busted up his legs pretty bad the year before, and he wanted to hunt, but he didn't think he could close the distance, um, you know, with his legs. So uh, it was earlier than, and there was a lot of people out there. So the experience was great. It was just the wrong, really kind of the wrong time of year. We should have went a couple weeks later. Let everybody kind of get in there and do their thing first. Yeah, because yeah, less the, competition. The animal they were pushed way out. Um, we didn't even hear any bugling, um, hardly at all. Oh, that's a bummer. They we, they were telling me out years prior that you couldn't even sleep because they were bugling all night, and I never mm-hmm. heard one at night. We never heard one, but it was still a great experience. Took a lot of nice pictures. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we had, we had a similar experience out in Idaho. Went out with my brother and so many people in every trailhead every time you walked up it's just like okay we're we're at the end of september they should still be bugling then nothing dead yeah. quiet you couldn't get anything my buddy lived out there well the day we left like everybody had cleared out season was closed down and they they went back to archery instead of rifle and he was up there for mule deer well everybody had left and nobody was there for elk they were singing all day long wow yeah, yeah. Comp- competition is a serious thing, though. Like when we were, you just reminded me of that when we were out uh, antelope hunting in Wyoming, it was the same kind of thing, man. It was like you'd start putting on a stalk, and you're and what, out there you can see forever. Yep. You know, like oh, there's some orange hats. Mm-hmm. So, well, they're closer than we are, so yeah. So that's a bummer. And actually, I was supposed to go in September for a the same hunt that you went on. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the with the baby coming, I kind of had to oh, yeah. put the kibosh on that. But yeah, I want to I want to do it bad because it, it's it's there, there's no drawing right. It's all yeah well, yeah, yeah yeah yeah. Sounds so much fun. Yeah, I've got some friends that do the points and all that, and I've never applied for points. Never bought well, see, points. Colorado or... for points, you have to buy a valid license in order to buy, buy a point. So. Uh, in order to buy a preference point for, say, elk or mule deer or anything, you have to buy, like, say, a fishing license that'll cost you $180 that you're not going to use. Yep. Yeah. Just. Yeah, with my elk, uh, tag was a mandatory annual Colorado fishing license. Yeah. Yeah. Which we used anyway because we had Cole Creek. Well, you were going to be there, but, right. like, my thing is, yeah. like, I'm trying to buy a preference point for the following year. Yeah. You know, so for this year, I have to buy a fishing license. You know damn well I'm not hey, going to go out to Colorado and go fishing. It's, it's I would all, want to. It's but... all for conservation. <laughs> you know, and that's very true. But, and, and trust me, if I had time, money. Oh, we'd be out there a heartbeat. <clears throat> oh, yeah, for sure. Hey, but... the environment and conservation, I believe, is a good cause. I just don't trust government with money. <coughs> Preaching to the choir. Yeah, we won't get into that. We, we lose enough of it and you Say no more. <laughs> so, uh, what I thought was very interesting at that wild game dinner we were at a couple weeks ago, you guys mentioned eating stingray, mm-hmm. and you said that it's your favorite meat. Yes. Do tell. 
<laughs> well, it is. It's um, uh, as far as actually harvesting the meat. It's a blast to be out on the on the ocean. It's like a tropical vacation. You know, you can be barefoot or in sandals and running around and seeing all the wildlife. You know, uh, sea life underneath the water. Um, then you get the stingray. You get it in and. You don't, you know, when you think of fishing, you think about having to debone. Mm-hmm. That's not the case with stingrays. There are two large fillets on the top and two large, smaller but large fillets on the bottom, and very fibrous but no bones. So for me, cooking them, it's very easy, and the meat can be. It's so depending on how I season it, it can be any flavor you really want it to be. But it's just good. What, what would you compare the texture and taste of the meat to? It's shark or swordfish. So, you know how fish is flaky? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and this is fibrous. It's it's like sh- like shark is fibrous. Yeah. You know, it's not really a flaky kind no, of a No, meat. I got you. I'm trying. And, and a stingray or the rays in general or skates are kind of like sharks, right? I mean, you can cut the wing off of a stingray like a cow nose. And it it resembles a big fin off of a okay. shark, okay. you know. And honestly, when you when you're flaying them out, you know, the center of the the body is where you know the organs and stuff are, and the gills, and you just work around that body cavity, and then just fillet all the way out to the tip of the wing because it's nothing but a very thick layer of cartilage that runs from that body cavity all the way out to the wing and now the knife won't even cut it you know yeah, so they they don't have any bones do they mm-hmm. they're 100 percent cartilage yeah i think even around the head and all that is pretty much just cartilage and you said they're kind of a junk fish down there yeah 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 that surprised us when we first started um and we put in um people asked us are you going for those stingrays and we were kind of hesitant because (laughs) you know we're not used to them kind of majestic creatures and uh he said yes we are and they said good take as many of them (laughs) as you can those stupid things just tear everything up and we're like oh yeah okay what is it what kind of damage do they do Crab pods, um, oh. and then they just tear up the bottom. Yeah, of they the take. Ocean. They go after, you know, clams and stuff. Okay. <laughs> so what they'll do is they burrow down into the bottom of the bays and make big holes. Um, and then crab pots, they'll try to get crabs out of the crab pots and drag those or do whatever to them. And then there's a lot of people that um, wade um, for flounder, flounder gigging. Okay. And they'll step on them and get spiked, Ooh. you know, in the leg or something. So, yeah. you guys ever been spiked? Yep. How yeah. much does that suck? It, yeah, it wasn't fun. <laughs> His yeah. thumb's still numb. Yeah, I got a, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a nasty little poison they got. There's a gland in the tail, and the barb is actually fluted, and there's a really thin layer of skin around the barb. And so, that gland secretes that toxin or whatever that is and it it runs down that flute and it permeate you know it's in under that skin so when the barb goes into something the skin on the barb tears and then all the whatever gets in in your flesh and so and what's it, it, it i mean it doesn't like 
Is it like a bee sting kind of thing? Like it just kind of swells up, or it's like a brown wasp sort of thing. Ooh. Yeah. Which I don't know if you know what a brown wasp is. I got hit with a couple of those when we lived down in Texas, and it's like immediately your joints start to ache. Uh, Everywhere or just where? Like, right. It just starts to spread. You know, if you get whacked in the hand and it's your wrist and down your elbow and it's kind of the same thing. But um, we actually, we used to do a stingray bow fishing tournament there in Virginia. And we were there one year and we weren't doing the tournament. We were out there with friends shooting and we heard that somebody actually uh, got a barb drove into their thigh during the tournament and they had to airlift that guy out because he, he almost got, died. Yeah. He got hit a couple times. Anaphylactic shock or something like that. What's, well, <clears throat> I mean, Steve Irwin, right? Isn't that yeah. how you went? Well, he, he got, got hit poked in right heart. in the heart. Yeah. Right? Right. I mean, that was like, yeah. I mean, the, the barb looks like almost like a, a saw shark. Yeah. If it, it is, I mean, the barb is extremely well designed. Cause it, it, you can slide it between, you can pinch your fingers together and slide that barb between your fingers. But when you go to pull it back, it grabs, it ain't going, really? no. Mm-hmm. So when like I got hit in the end of the thumb, it didn't go in that far. I don't know how far it went in, but when I pulled my thumb off that, it pulled flesh out. How do they hit you with that thing? Cause I'm, I'm trying to imagine cause they're, they're like, they're they, straight out. They they're fold, a giant. They fold like a taco. Oh, like a, almost like a scorpion kind of. Yep. Okay. Yep. They will come right over and pop you. So we we make sure that this um, barb is removed before they actually come into the boat. So all you have to do is just cut them, uh, you know, like grab them with uh, Leatherman pliers and then cut them off. And then we fill water bottles. So then once you boil the barb, then they're fine. Their toxins are not there. It comes oh. out as just a white. Like that skull there. It comes out as white bone. They're pretty cool. Do you guys do anything with them? I keep them in bags. I haven't done it. I was going to make like a picture frame or something. I just haven't got around to it. Because I, I can imagine like I'm, I'm assuming like the Native Americans must have used them for something, right? Oh, you oh, could yeah. easily you could easily put it on the tip of something and use it to like an dig fish. Or, or yeah, even better. Because when they go in, they don't want to come out. So it would make like a good primitive bow fishing tip yeah how often do you guys go down there not enough yeah we used to do two weeks a summer um but you know because of is summer just a good time to go down because i would think living up here you'd want to go down like i don't know march well we don't i mean we do the outer banks in virginia chesapeake bay um we have done delaware with Corey brossman who's a kind of a he's a tv fishing hunting personality awesome um yeah he's they call him the bow fishing guru <laughs> he has and, interlock out there and a bunch of other shows yeah really he does that's quite awesome a few. um and he uh spends his whole summer in delaware doing nothing but bow fishing stingrays that's what he does and then of course you know as you get into fall closer to fall and he goes out and he's doing all the hunting September on, but he's the one that showed us how to bowfish stingrays. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, I'm assuming the refraction wouldn't be as big of a deal or is it? It is same. Um, doesn't so pretty big target, right? Right. Yeah. You got more of a chance of hitting a, does it, does it matter where you hit those ones like head versus wing or is it all kind of, they're closer, closer to the body, the better. Okay. Um, out on the wing, 
because uh, you you go through that cartilage and you can tear out pretty easy. Okay. So you want to go for the center of the body as much as you can, but I mean, just a, a little fifty pound ray fights like you. little little fifty pound ray. I was I was just about to ask like what's what's a big stingray? Uh, I mean, we've shot mm. southerns over one hundred twenty pounds. Most of them are bigger than this table. About half the size of this table is like so average. When, so when you're taking meat, you're getting yes. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, Josh, we, I think we need to head down south. Yeah, one two week. I lived there once. <laughs> you didn't come visit me, buddy. <laughs> one two week trip. Uh, we take every cooler we have, and I think one two week trip that we went out maybe six days in two weeks or seven days. We, we brought back like 400 pounds of meat. See, that wow. sounds awesome. The reason I haven't, I've never been bow fishing. So the the whole reason I've never done it, it was, you know, around here, it's carp, right? You know, yeah. gar, which gar you can eat. Yeah. And you can eat carp if you really want to, but. Yeah. I like David's idea, feed your chickens. Yeah. Chickens mm-hmm. and fertilizer. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know, man, just staying out all night and. Not all sure. night. That's the best thing. Bow fishing on the coast doesn't. We don't have to be out all night. No, you're out there in the middle of the day, morning, anytime you we're want. Going. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you're gonna um, do the flounder, then that's usually when we go out yeah. at night. You Flounders know, because you see night. those a lot easier. But oh man, the Potomac River, the snakehead—that's even better meat than the stingray. I literally lived on the Potomac. Yeah, mass. <laughs> they got big blue cats and. Um, would you call it snakehead? Yeah. Snakehead, yeah. yeah. Oh, now, those things are vicious. Like all Never this, seen. the, what movie is it? Like Tumors, Tremors. Tremors. I mean, Tremors, <laughs> Tumors, Tremors. You know what those things? Yeah, that kind of reminds me of a snakehead. A snakehead's a dogfish. It's a bowfin. Okay. But it's like the piranha yeah, variety. Big teeth. Oh, yeah. They're, they look almost identical. They've just got more markings and like just a touch and different I've, face. I've seen them as big as your leg. Really? Yeah, vicious. And but they are, uh, it's an awesome, just a one good clean meat. Really? Yeah, insanely good. Uh, I wonder what the difference is there because I I catch bowfin up here once in a while on accident, and I've caught them, and you know the meat is mush. I yeah. mean, it's like I don't know. This it's a warmer is, water, probably, and that's something to do with it, right? Even being warmer water, man, it's not even like you don't get a fillet. It's like slapping your hand in a bowl of oatmeal when you take that meat but, off. But man. I'll say I, I catch bluegill up here in. Warmer water compared to cooler water, and I can tell a difference in the fillets. Just the fillets seem there's not much to them. Yeah, yeah. yeah Just later, early season fish is much better. Yeah, or like if you go up to say like Drummond Island and do perch or anything up there in April, you know, just when the ice starts moving out. Um, yeah, much just you can you can tell the difference in the taste for sure. So if somebody wanted to go down to say North Carolina, where do you guys go? Outer Banks, Outer Banks, Virginia, Chesapeake Bay. So if somebody went down there and wanted to hunt stingrays, I'm sure there's guide services they can hook up with, right? Yeah. Are, are you guys guide down there too, correct? Well, I don't guide in the ocean. That's under USCG, Ooh. which is the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. So what I have is an inland pilot's license for Michigan. So I we're, we're uh, licensed to guide in the state of Michigan on non-navigable waters, meaning they're not under the Coast Guard jurisdiction non-navigable so like we were just talking about that the other day typically it's something that can't go so like below the dam in Berrien Springs you can literally go from there to the ocean really that's considered navigable 
but not above the dam. Right, because you can't get a boat across the dam. True. You're locked. You're landlocked. So that's their, you know, that's kind of their determination. So I don't have what's called a six-pack or, or a Coast Guard captain's license. Um, I have, to, I, sh- I need to take the time to uh, invest in that. It's like, you know, a week long and $1,000 or something, which is... It's crazy. I mean, I understand all the safety stuff and this and that. And you have to do that to get an inland pilot's license for Michigan, too. You know, it was a relatively comprehensive test, but it didn't cost you gobs of money. Um, but, uh, I mean, they they calculating wind drift and plotting on charts. And, you know, once you get a six-pack, they call it, I mean, you're good to you can run a vessel of up to a hundred tons yeah, a like hundred miles yeah. offshore with six paying passengers. It's like, it's a washing wow. boat. Right. You know what I mean? Can't you have like a three pack or something? <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, so you're saying they go all or nothing. There's no, well, in and that, no, well, because that's just the beginning. I mean, the captain's licenses go even higher than that, but that's their entry level deal. So, um, Could- yeah. Well, well, just the, the non-navigal part came up because I don't know if we did it on the podcast or not, but we were talking about uh, like riparian zones and like we were always under the impression as long as you're in the water, you can technically like walk through somebody's backyard as long as you're in the water. Well, and that varies state to state too. That's not a federal thing. Mm-hmm. Right. But we were talking in Michigan, Ben was telling us, or it was Ben or David telling us that it was uh that's only for non-navigable waters. No, that was actually Andrew when we were fishing with him because he True. Had, Yeah, he got uh he didn't get popped by the DNR, but they stopped and they're like, "No. You know, a lot of people think that, but this guy's actually right cuz somebody called on him walking through a creek in Buchanan, and we won't name. <laughs> but yeah, he was surprised too cuz you'd think, you know, it's a creek, you know, it's maybe as wide as this room. It's you know, you could take a kayak down it and you're fine, but nope. So they considered it private property? Yep. Apparently. So a lake, if you're in the water in a lake, that's private property? Right. But but the, but that was that was what we were talking about because the guy told him or the officer told him non-navigable waters are off, are off limits. They got to be navigable waters in order for that law to... Which is crazy because what you just said, you know, it just clicks as well. It's a lake, well, so a it's lake landlocked. is a lake is not navigable. Yeah, so you wouldn't, I mean, but you're not touching the ground underneath, right? So if but you're actually touching the lake bed or the river bed, then you're technically on private property. Man, we need to get dragon yep. here. We need to get a DNR officer. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I tried. He referred me to their plane. Well, yeah, we know a guy. Speaking of which, do quick side note, uh, for those of you that are following the situation, they did catch, did I even talk about that on podcast, the turkey poacher? No, you didn't. So I was turkey hunting a couple weeks ago, and uh, so last year, opening weekend took place, everybody went back to work on Monday. My neighbor over here sent me a text while I was at work last year and said, hey, his wife sent him a text, like, hey, somebody just pulled up in our driveway with a shotgun, got out and shot a turkey and left. What the hell, you know? And she called it a, a black Chevy. Fast forward this year, Monday, you know, everybody goes back to work. Bert was still hunting. And I was sitting on his property and watched a black Toyota pass me and then come back around super slow. 
and there was a group of toms following a group of hens, and the hens were on the opposite side of the road, and that dude slowed down, and I just heard, boom, shot across traffic from his vehicle, pulled alongside the road, and I watched him get out, grab the turkey, throw it. It was a hen, by the way, even better. Threw in his truck and drove off, and that's why I called dispatch, and they got the ball rolling, and uh, I had to do a written statement, blah, blah, blah. But it was it was awesome because you know Dragomir, the CEO that we know, yeah. I should probably bleep his name out, but uh, he came in here and he was like, it was pretty pretty obvious, like because they already know who the guy was just from oh. they were on to him last year, they couldn't prove it kind of thing, and I and I gave him a description and stuff, and he's like, yeah, pull up in his garage and there's a dead turkey, and he just admitted to everything other than shooting from the truck and across traffic, so. <laughs> Hence the written statement. So that son of a bitch hopefully gets in some serious trouble because that shit's well, completely unacceptable. I told you about the incident with the geese last year. Same guy. It, it, it was, in fact, the same guy. I talked to Tyler last night about it. And, yeah, Black Toyota pulled up. Dude gets out with a handgun, walks up to somebody's pond in their yard, shoots three geese, throws them in the bed and leaves. What is – I mean, is he – like starving for food? Star- driving a, like a 2016 Toyota Tundra. I don't think the dude's starving. You know what I mean? If he is, he should sell his truck. Well, Seems I mean, to be the reasonable one, you know. <laughs> you can't feel good about taking no, and any a, animal in that fashion. No, and it was a hen. Yeah. You know what I mean? It wasn't like he, he was trying. He probably doesn't know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It just, I mean, that's what that's what struck me the strangest. It's like I, I can see some asshole, you know, shooting a giant buck or a giant bird out of a truck and being like, you know, to show off his, to his buddies. Like, look what I got. Yeah. You, I don't know how you'd feel good about that, but it's probably just the thrill of it. He just he was getting away with it, and that's something that and unfortunately, his jolly's off doing it. And that's what the CEO said. He's like, unfortunately, the dude's probably going to keep doing what he's doing. It just depends on how hard the judge is on him. You know what? I know who it is now. When we know where he lives, I'm going to keep it on Brian Nedaba. Brian Nedaba <laughs> is his name. Everybody, you want me to spell it? N e d o b a. He's an asshole. If he keeps getting hit with these charges, I can't imagine they're going to let him keep his truck. They're going to take everything. I've seen it happen before. You throw a poached animal in a vehicle and transport it, right there they have rights to take it. I Anything you use. Well, if it was in his garage, maybe they could take his <laughs> Oh, one would hope. We got to play Stump Tithe before we end this. So, oh, man. <laughs> so for you guys... Um, I know you haven't listened to the podcast because you said you never watched or listened to one. So what we do is every episode uh, about a certain topic, I come up with five questions to ask Josh here. Yeah, he likes to make me look a little bit uh, less intelligent than I actually am. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, it's just fun. A little educational part of things. But uh, So I didn't come up with all the questions this time, though. I made a Snapchat because I had a late night last night and didn't feel like doing them. So I got a made a Snapchat. Was Bobby part of this? No, actually. Uh, Paul Tucker. Oh, okay. Allie's Ferrier. Okay. Yeah. Know you know Paul. him? Yeah. yeah Good he, guy. He was my when I was over in the barn in, in Edwardsburg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good yeah. guy. Yeah, good very guy. good yeah. guy. Yeah, we love Paul. Uh, let's see here. I'm really hoping these ones are multiple choice. I got you a couple true and false. We're going to start with a true and false. Ooh, nice. And this first one's going to be really tough for these guys not to answer, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, we just keep our mouth shut. Right? Do I get a until, phone? Until, until he answers, then you guys this can have a hand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Appreciate so, all the help I can get. So, like I said, these these next couple questions are courtesy of Paul Tucker. So, he says, paper tuning your bow helps your accuracy. True or false? Paper tuning your bow. Uh, I'm going to go with true. He says false. Yeah, hey, well. What kind of bow is it? So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't matter. Accuracy ultimately depends on the archer. Yeah. So the you could have an absolutely perfectly tuned setup, but ultimately it's up to you. It's up to the archer to put the arrow in the X. Or so the so should we target. talk about what exactly paper tuning? I mean, is I mean what what you're trying to accomplish? Well, paper tuning will tell you a lot about your arrow and and bow setup. So you know center shot, knock height. Um, can tell you whether the spine of your arrow is incorrect, you know, too weak, too stiff. Um, a higher low tear can tell you that your cam timing could be out, possibly. So to back up, um, paper tuning is when you shoot an arrow through a piece of taut paper on a stand, and we are gauging how the hole goes through that paper, whether it's a nice clean hole or if there's an up tear, a side tear, how basically the hole Making sure your arrow's flying straight and not whack, mm-hmm. basically, right? Yep. 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 So it, it helps the bow be more accurate, but not the shooter. Well, that's not true either because no. you can tell a lot about a person uh, torquing a, a riser. So you can tell a lot about how a person shoots their bow um, or grips their bow or might, you know, be torquing their riser um, by checking paper holes too. Because, I mean, I can hold a bow two, three different ways and get a different tear every time. Okay. I can make a bow that isn't, like, center shot isn't right. I can make that bow shoot a perfect hole by torquing. So the answer is true and false to be, you know... <laughs> In a way, because right, even, no, a, even a poorly tuned bow will shoot the same way every time. Right. Yes. That, yeah. It'll shoot consistently. It'll shoot the same way every time. So you could, you know, I could shoot an arrow and I'm like, okay, well, I'm, you know, I got my pin where it needs to go, but the tail, the, you know, arrow's kicking off the rest or whatever. And so it's shooting just high left. And so I'm aiming just low right. It's just like having a rifle that's not dialed into zero. Yeah. If you know you're off an inch to the left and you hold to the right. Arkansas aim. Yep. But ultimately, you know, it is. The the bow could be turned perfectly. You could have a perfect arrow, everything. But ultimately, accuracy is up to the individual shooting the bow. So. Okay. Next. He says, <laughs> who made and patented the first compound bow? Multiple choice. A. Fred Bear. B. Earl Hoyt Sr. C. Hollis Wilbur Allen. D. Bob Evans. <laughs> if you say D, I'm gonna throw something at you. He's got good sense. No, I'm I'm struggling between Allen and Bear. I wanna say it was Allen. Correct. Right? Yeah. That was correct. I think I put the I put the yeah I screwed up right. I'm right, right? It's <laughs> I was supposed to put that for B. I think, yeah. but yeah, Alan. Yeah, you were right, dude. Good job. 
I was looking into a little bit of that. I'm I'm just getting back into the compound swing, so No, so I'm uh, assuming that was Alan Bowes. Yeah. Are they still a thing? No. They just make the broadheads and Yeah, they've got same like company, right? Archery accessory stuff okay. mostly. Yeah. Uh and then he says What year was Matthews Bowes founded? I don't know. I don't care. I, I don't know. like Matthews. I know, I know. <laughs> hey. You take this up with Paul. <laughs> so we got 1952, B, 1987, C, 1992, or D, 1997. And don't look at her. <laughs> what? Well, you don't want me to say it's 87? Answer. 87. 92. <laughs> According to Paul. He could be wrong. I didn't look up any of these. Um. Last one. This one I came up with, and this is this is your last one. You really should have looked that up. Yeah. Is it 87 or 92? It would have probably been 92. I know. He I said 92. I graduated 80, in 92, but... 80, 87. I would remember. No, I don't think so. I just do 87 in there, because that's when I was born. So. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> what? Really? Oh, yeah. Why do I look older? No, that just <laughs> makes us older. <laughs> Much I used to think looking older was cool till I got in my 30s. Um, yeah, how about when you haven't been carted for 10 years and you're 27? Right. Think about that. <laughs> All right. Last one, Typeke. Uh Hopefully I worded this one right. All right. So Robin Hood. This is a Robin Hood question. You ready? Go for it. All right. The Robin Hood motto of steal from the rich and give to the needy was believed to be about money. The real-life version was Robin Hood was killing and butchering the king's wild animals. True or false? True. True. Good job. Absolutely true. Good for you. I'm surprised you knew that. Or did you just guess? No, I know a lot of (laughs) random facts, okay? I know you do. That's why it's so fun to play this game. (laughs) Yeah, but the ones that are, like, actual factual about the topic, I'm like, oh... I was, oh, trying, no. I was trying to figure out a ring size for my fiance when I was getting ready to propose to her. And I'm like, I don't even know what size she is. And Typhke's like, well, you know, random knowledge he's got in his head. He's just like, it's usually what they're, would you tell me their they're shoe size or something? Typically then, within a half size of the shoe size. And he was. I, I was told that it's like 80% of people are right there. And that's pretty true. Hmm. Some people are way off. Like my friend Lauren, did not even close, but. Most people are within a half size, but you see what I deal with here. Just he just knows everything, so it's Dang. it's fun to try to stump him. Any good resource is a good resource, <laughs> right? Um, we are over an hour, so if you if you guys got anything you guys want to add, do you have any questions you want to ask? Um, how like do you guys do bow fishing trips all summer long, all throughout, like every weekend or all week? Um, well, typically it depends on the weather, right? So I kind of keep an eye on the weather. Um, I have resources. I mean, we don't get out and scout because uh, we don't we don't have time. But I have other resources that I call up and say, "Hey, you know, you think this will be good, or where have you been shooting, or you know, whatever." Because we don't do the tournament thing, so people don't really care. <laughs> They'll tell me, uh, you know, where decent spots are, so that I can you know take people out and they can have a good time. Um, Usually only till about the middle of summer. Okay. Um, you know, later in the summer, there's just the increased boat traffic and the heat usually drives, you know, the fish are just, it's just not as good. 
Um, and the shops are generally really picking up by then too. So, um, getting ready for deer season. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to beat the rush, head in now. (laughs) Um, yeah. So I usually just keep a list of people and then make phone calls and say, Hey, you know, are you available? You want to go out, you know, tomorrow night or Thursday night or whatever. Like I'm taking a guy out tonight. Um, and I've got two that are wanting to book trips um so i'm just basically put them on the list okay do you do like rental bows with that as well or do you have to have your own setup no all the equipment's provided okay yeah, that's you awesome can, you can bring your own but we've got bows for use uh yeah. left and right hand and so. i heard you guys got one hell of a setup for that boat we were almost brought it here yeah the boats yeah it's a it's a custom built prodigy from jasper georgia so, um, it's, it's kind of big and overkill, uh, but it was built for the ocean. I mean, if it's comfortable. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You could shoot six people off of it very comfortably. Oh, wow. There's no decks. It's a complete deck over. So you just walk around the thing. Um, light boxes, it's got 14 lights, two 3,500 watt generators. And I just upgraded to a harsh technologies, 120 volt AC troller. Wow. Uh, so I ditched the 112, 112 uh, pound thrust Minkota. And um, Dave Harshberger from New, uh, he's in Napanee. He does harsh lock arrows. Um, and I think he's calling it all, I think it's harsh technologies now or harsh tech, bow fishing technologies. So he actually last year, um, I don't know if he, he was working on it probably before last year, but last year was kind of when they it popped up that he had uh, developed a 120-volt AC uh, trolling motor that plugs right into the generator. So no converters, no batteries, none of that That's stuff. That's awesome. So tonight will be the uh, maiden voyage uh, oh, with, cool. with that new thing. So. And typically with our tub, because it's, it's a 3 bottom, 8-inch side, um, it, it's a heavy rig, you know, it's got, uh, it's a prop tunnel with 140 horse Suzuki four stroke and a pulling platform and a T-top and center cut. So it's a really heavy boat. And usually we can get up to about three miles an hour cruising speed with a 112, uh, um, and he says, we'll probably get at least five, if not more out of this nice. new one. So, which will be very nice, especially with the stingrays, because usually once you center punch them, they take off and they, they're bigger than the size of this, the width and length of this table. Um, so you're quickly trying to go from a nice cruising speed to looking to having to really ripping it and getting mm-hmm. after them. Um, we lose, we lose some that way. We lost, I lost one last year year the year before we lose big ones every year because they're just too fast they just suck the bottle inside out or break the line or rip the bow out of your hand or whatever but we have slotted we have some bows with slotted reels now with buoys so you just shoot them and they go and you just follow the buoy oh that's awesome but the bigger ones you got to get two to three arrows in um, so before you can land them you said they'll rip the bow out of your hand have you lost bows to stingrays no because you can see 
you know, okay. where it's at. So if they drag the bow, you just follow the bow. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know where it's so last, last time we were out, uh, one of our friends uh, shot one of the stingrays, and the knot came off the arrow or something happened. And the line. The broke. line. It just, and there it goes. And the the arrow was flapping in the in the water, you know, like see ya waving as it goes, and we looked for that stingray, couldn't find it for a, quite a while. Came back the next day, and sure enough, no, there it was. It was that afternoon. Was it? We went to the next island and oh, yeah. fueled up and ate, and then on the way back to the other island where we normally shoot, because tide goes in and out, and you mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> on the way back, we we're like, what the heck is that? And it was a stinking arrow. <laughs> so, we, so we shot it and got the arrow back. Yeah, we pulled up there. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So for up here, if anybody wants to get a hold of you to try to do a trip or any lessons or anything, Absolutely. what's the best way to get a hold of you guys? Either, either shop. Call either shop. Um, Saint Joe or Niles. Yep. Saint yeah. Saint Joe or Niles. Um. So Saint Joe's two six nine nine eight five three six four three. And Niles is 269-479-9944. Um, or you can find us on um, Facebook. So Ground Zero Archery is yep. on Facebook. You can send us a message there, uh, groundzeroarchery.com. Yeah. You, you can get on, on the website and send us a message or an email through that. Um, and then all the shop information is on there as well. And there's also a calendar on there of, uh, we're trying to update the calendar as much as we can, but there's going to be a calendar on the website you can go to and find um, area shoots. So USA mm-hmm. Archery Events. Um, local Conservation Clubs. Yep, 3D shoots at the local conservation clubs. So Paw Paw, Dwajak, um, Bering County. Bow fishing tournaments. Yep, bow fishing information, that kind of stuff. So kind of a one, you know. A resource that people can go to to find out where shoots are and when they are. Right. Instead of trying to dig through everything. And uh, it, to our knowledge, that isn't available. And so I know that's frustrating for everybody. So if any of you have any information um, about shoots, please send that to us in an email. So that way we can update our calendar to let everyone know that your event is happening. Yeah, we love to pr- promote um archery as much as we can and ground zero has just ground zero archery just recently joined twitter so check us out on twitter (laughs) scott's like what um (laughs) i i just want to mention that you guys i mean it says saint joe but you mentioned this at the at the wild game dinner that it's it's technically what's it's saint joe but it's like scottsdale yeah, it's, it's a lot of the area, uh, local people know it as the Scottsdale area because it is the small town of Scottsdale. Right by the Ace, right? Is that what's right there? True Value. No, True Value. True value. Yeah. Yeah. Pater True Value. Pater True Value. We're actually in the same building as Pater True Value. We're just the door to the north. And you guys you guys do leagues out of there too, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, out of there in Niles. Um, yeah, so there's just the two little doors and it looks like there's you know just a little shop or whatever you walk in and it's it's a big it's a big shop and we have a big range it's a 30 yard range 50 feet wide it's got a 15 foot back line so plenty of room enough racking for 60 bows or so um niles is smaller range it's 20 yards um a smaller back line we do have what we call the mountain scape in one of the corners so it's a five-tiered 
um, platform, kind of like a mountain we put 3D targets on uh, and trees. And then there's also a 30-foot long uh, elevated shooting platform. So you can shoot overhead in Niles. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we do offer um, classes also, uh, target archery classes from beginner to advanced. Um, so like we said, we do all disciplines of archery. Uh, Scott and I are actually uh, USA level four um, NTS Olympic coaches. There's only five nice. levels in our USA system. And so we are at level number four. Basically, that means we have gone through the education needed to take archers with where they need to go, no matter what your discipline is. We are truly just passionate about archery, and we are very uh, willing and want to help you get where you need to go. I can vouch for that. I trust you guys with all my stuff, Tyke as well. So look them up. You guys are awesome. And even if you guys personally aren't in there, all your technicians, I mean, they've all been great every time I've gone in there. So super polite, super helpful, and very knowledgeable. So awesome. digging what you guys are doing, man. All awesome. right. Well, thank you. Yep. All right, we'll talk to you guys next time. All right, that's it. So we're not really sure what we got coming up for you next. We got a couple guests lined up, but we're not really sure who's coming on first, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, should be interesting. As always, all the artwork is done by the Shane Yoder. I don't say music anymore because I've lost it. And all editing is done by yours truly, Brent Ruff. And this episode was brought to you by Ruff's Custom Carpentry. Make sure you look them up on Facebook for any carpentry needs. All right, everybody, be safe out there. Talk to you next time.